and welcome to the reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette for Friday, February 3rd, 2023. I'm your reader, Catherine Moyers. The headline from today's paper is 43 North Iowa Acquires Old Globe Gazette Home by Robin McClelland. 43 North Iowa has acquired the former Globe Gazette building as part of a two-year expansion of mental health services in the area. The building, located at North Washington Avenue and 4th Street Northwest in Mason City, will be home to a 15-bed residential facility, according to John Derryberry, Executive Director of 43 North Iowa. Additional undertakings by the organization include plans for Crisis Stabilization Center to be re- located at the current 43 North Iowa Administration Office at 111 2nd Street Northeast. The CSC will offer three to five days of staffed care to ease clients through times of extreme difficulty. For those who need more assistance in regaining or building independent living skills, 43 North Iowa will also operate a four-bed fully staffed home utilizing the Intensive Residential Services Home, IRSH, program. The program allows residents to integrate all aspects of treatment and support it into their daily lives to build successful habits. Derryberry, his staff, and the coordinators at Central Iowa Community Services have been studying community needs for quite some time now. We engage in expansion only after extensive talks with other local service providers, including the Mason City Police Department, Mercy One staff, and other agencies. We really make sure we're meeting a need before we make plans. The three new residential centers will allow for varying types of community-based care to best address individual needs. Crisis stabilization gives clients a 24-hour, 7-day-a-week, safe and supportive place to work through mental health or situational crisis in a short-term setting. Assistance will be mainly offered in the downtown area, allowing ease of access to services and 443 North Iowa to focus its staff resources where they are needed most. The 15-bed residential care facility will offer living space, treatment, and community integration, while the IRSH program is designed to help clients living with a mental health diagnosis who have not been successful with stable, self-supported housing. The next story is titled, 3% School Funding Increase on Table, by Aaron Murphy, Dateline, Des Moines. Iowa's K-12 public schools would get a 3% increase in per-pupil state funding for the next school year under proposals from the Republican majorities in the House and Senate, larger than the increase sought by the governor, but smaller than what Democrats wanted. The Iowa Senate approved the funding proposal Thursday. The House will consider the proposal next week. Republicans there also support a 3% increase. Governor Reynolds' proposed budget, published in January, included a 2.5% increase in per-pupil K-12 through public school funding. Republican legislative leaders said they have not discussed the increased funding level with Reynolds, and her office did not respond to a request for comment Thursday. The proposed legislation 
allocates $3.7 billion in general funding to Iowa's 327 K-12 public school districts, an increase of nearly $124 million over the current year, according to an analysis by the state's nonpartisan Legislative Services Agency. Iowa's total state general fund budget for the current budget year is roughly $8.2 billion. I'll start with the word conservative. With no apology, we have a conservative budgeting policy and people in increasing numbers sent us back to the Iowa House and Senate, said Senator Ken Rosenboom, a Republican from Oskaloosa, who chairs the Senate's Education Committee. This reflects our conservatism. This is sustainable. Representative Pat Grassley, the House Speaker from New Hartford, said House Republicans also will support a 3% public school funding increase. We know that's something that works in the budget, Grassley told reporters Thursday. We thought that that was a very, very solid number to be able to show support for our public school systems. Earlier this session, State House Republicans approved a new program that, at full implementation in four years, will each year make roughly $7,600 in state-funded private school aid available for any K-12 student in Iowa. The program is projected to cost the state $345 million annually. Democrats in the Senate this week proposed a public school funding increase of roughly 6%, which would amount to an additional $267 million. Democrats said that equals what Republicans have proposed for the new private school financial aid program this year, plus a reduction in corporate income taxes approved last year. Democrats pitched their proposal as an amendment to Republicans' bill. It was defeated mostly along party lines, with Republican Senator Charlie McClintock of Alburnett voting with Democrats. Shortchanging Iowa's public schools is shortchanging the future of Iowa's kids. That's the inescapable truth, said Senator Herman Quirmbach of Ames, the top Democrat on the state Senate Education Committee and a former Iowa State University professor. We're proposing a different set of priorities. Our priorities and our obligations are to the public school students in Iowa. Since Republicans regained at least partial control of the state lawmaking process in 2011, state general funding for public K-12 schools has increased by an average of 1.9% annually. Over the previous 38 years, under the current state school funding formula, that funding increased by an average of 5% annually, according to the legislative agency's data. The 3% increase proposed by legislative Republicans would be the second largest increase since 2011, trailing only the 4% increase implemented for the 2014-2015 school year, according to the data. Democrats argue the lower rates of annual funding increases over the past decade plus have not kept up with inflation, creating fiscal challenges for school districts. In addition to the proposed 6 increase in per-pupil funding, Democrats also pitched amendments that would fund all-day four-year-old preschool in all districts, funding boosts for the special education programs, and per-pupil funding for low-income students. All were defeated on party-line votes. 
Similarly, the final vote on Senate File 192 was a party-line vote, 34 to 15, with Republicans supporting and Democrats opposing. The last story from the front page is titled Searching for a Water Solution by Brittany J. Miller. Dateline, Cedar Rapids. Waves of torrential rainfall drenched California into the new year. Snowpacks in the Sierra Nevada mountains have swelled to more than 200% of their normal size, and snowfall across the rest of the Colorado River Basin is trending above average, too. While the much-needed water has improved conditions in the parched west, experts warn against claiming victory. About 60% of the region remains in some form of drought, continuing a decades-long spiral into water scarcity. The drought is so critical that this recent rainfall is a little like finding a $20 bill when you've lost your job and you're being evicted from your house, said Rhett Larson, an Arizona State University professor of water law. Over the years, a proposed solution has come up again and again. Large-scale river diversions, including pumping Mississippi River water to the parched west. Just this past summer, the idea caused a firestorm of letters to the editor at a California newspaper. But interest spans deeper than that. Most recently, the Arizona State Legislature passed a measure in 2021 urging Congress to investigate pumping flood water from the Mississippi River to the Colorado River to bolster its flow. Studies and modern-day engineering have proven that such projects are possible but would require decades of construction and billions of dollars. Politics are an even bigger obstacle for making multi-state pipelines a reality. Yet their persistence in the public sphere illustrates the growing desperation of Western states to dig themselves out of droughts. We can move water, and we've proven our desire to do it. I think it would be foolhardy to dismiss it as not feasible, said Richard Rood, professor of climate and space sciences and engineering at the University of Michigan. But we need to know a lot more about it than we currently do. Formal large-scale water importation proposals have existed in the United States since at least the 1960s, when an American company devised the North American Water and Power Alliance to redistribute Alaskan water across the continent using reservoirs and canals. Widespread interest in the plan eventually fizzled. Stories of similar projects often share the same ending, from proposals in Iowa and Minnesota to those between Canada and the United States. Yet some smaller-scale projects have become reality. A Kansas groundwater management agency, for instance, received a permit last year to truck 6,000 gallons of Missouri River water into Kansas and Colorado in hopes of recharging an aquifer. In northwestern Iowa, a river has repeatedly been pumped dry by a rural water utility that sells at least a quarter of the water outside the state, and there are several approved diversions that draw water from the Great Lakes. On the heels of Arizona's 2021 push for a pipeline feasibility study, former Arizona Governor Doug Ducey signed legislation this past July that invested $1.2 billion to fund projects that conserve water and bring more into the state. 
Among its provisions, the law granted the state's Water Infrastructure Finance Authority to investigate the feasibility of potential out-of-state water import agreements. An in-depth feasibility study specifically on pumping Mississippi River water to the West hasn't been conducted yet, to Larson's knowledge. He said he's open to one, but doesn't think it's necessary. I think the feasibility study is likely to tell us what we already know, he said, which is that there are a lot less expensive, less complicated options than that we can be investing in right now, like reducing water use. In 2012, the U.S. Department of the Interior's Bureau of Reclamation completed the most comprehensive analysis ever undertaken within the Colorado River Basin at the time, which analyzed solutions to water supply issues, including importing water from the Missouri and Mississippi rivers. Under the analyzed scenario, water would be conveyed to Colorado's Front Range and areas of New Mexico to help fulfill water needs. It would cost at least $1,700 per acre feet of water, potentially yield 600,000 acre feet of water per year by 2060, and take 30 years to construct. An additional analysis emerged a decade later when Roger Viadero, an environmental scientist and engineer at Western Illinois University, and his graduate students assessed proposals suggested in last summer's viral editorials. In their technical report, which hasn't been peer-reviewed, they calculated that a pipe for moving this scale of water would need to be 88 feet in diameter, around twice the length of a semi-trailer, or a 100-foot-wide channel that's 61 feet deep. Experts we spoke with agreed the feet would be astronomical. Still, it's physically possible. As an engineer, I can guarantee you that it is doable, Viadero said, but there are tons of things that can be done but aren't ever done. Viadero's team estimated that the sale of the water needed to fill the Colorado Rivers, Lake Powell, and Lake Mead, the largest reservoirs in the country, would cost more than $134 billion at a penny a gallon. The price tag for construction would add to this hefty bill, along with the costs of powering the equipment needed to pump the water over the Western Continental Divide. Buying land to secure water rights would cost a chunk of cash, too, which leads to an even larger obstacle for such proposals, the legal and political hoops. Local hurdles include endangered species protections, wetland protections, drinking water supply considerations, and interstate shipping protections. Precedents set by other diversion attempts like those that created the Great Lakes Compact also cast doubt over the political viability of any large-scale Mississippi River diversion attempt, said Chloe Wardrooper, a University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign professor researching environmental governance. Transnational pipelines would also impact ecological resources. Lower Mississippi River flow means less sediment carried down to Louisiana, where it's used for coastal restoration. And diverting that water also means spreading problems like pollutants, excessive nutrients, and invasive species. Most notably, the Mississippi River Basin doesn't always have enough water to spare. 
Drought conditions plagued the region throughout 2022, for instance, prompting concerns over river navigation. No one wants to leave the western states without water, said Melissa Scanlon, a freshwater sciences professor at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. But moving water from one drought-impacted area to another is not a solution. The idea of a pipeline transecting the continent is not a new idea, but as water scarcity in the West gets more desperate, the hurdles could be overcome one day. It's possible that this situation gets so dire that there is an amount of money out there that could overcome all of these obstacles, Larson said. It might be in the trillions, but it probably does exist. In the meantime, researchers encourage more feasible and sustainable options, including better water conservation, water recycling, and less agricultural reliance. Other forms of augmentation, like desalination, are also gaining popularity on the national scene as possible options. Those will require sacrifices, no doubt, but not as many as building a giant pipeline would require, experts said. To be talking about pipe dreams when that's not even feasible for decades, if at all, it's a disservice, Scanlon said. People need to focus on their realistic solutions. Turning to page two, the story is Lake Mills Woman Snags $30,000 Lottery Ticket. Dateline, Clive, Iowa. A North Iowa woman has won a $30,000 lottery prize. According to a press release, Deborah Christensen of Lake Mills won the first top prize in the $30,000 crossword scratch game. She bought the ticket at David's Foods, 103 North Washington Street in Lake Mills, and scratched it at her kitchen table. Christensen said she knew she had a big winner, but wasn't sure at first how much she'd won. I couldn't tell if it was nine or ten words. I was just so excited and shaking, she said. I was trying to count them as I was scratching them off, and then I'd lose count and start all over. Finally, we just had to write all the words down on a piece of paper, and we counted them, and there were ten. That's when we knew. She said her husband, Terry, remained skeptical of the big win until they returned to the store the next morning to verify the win on the store's lottery terminal. Christensen said she plans to put some of her winnings toward home improvements. She claimed her prize Friday at Lottery Headquarters in Mason City. The next story is titled, In the Wake of Tyree Nichols' Death, Past Defeats on Police Reform Haunt Congress. By the Associated Press, Dateline, Washington. Weeks before President Joe Biden made his first address to Congress in 2021, a graphic video was released of a black man being killed at the hands of police. The country watched the now-haunting familiar familiar scene play out across its screens. Family members tearfully pleaded for change. Lawmakers in Washington pledged to pass meaningful reform. Biden pumped momentum into talks during the nationally televised address, telling Congress to get it done by the next month. The anniversary of a Minneapolis police officer's killing of another black man, George Floyd. We've all seen the knee of injustice on the neck of black Americans, the Democratic president said. Now is our opportunity to make some real progress. And then, as before, negotiations fell apart along partisan lines, pushing the issue of police brutality to the back of the line of legislative priorities 
underscoring again how Congress often fails to deliver solutions, even when there is broad agreement on the problem. As Biden begins his third year in office, there is another deadly sequel. A video released last week showed the violent January 7th encounter between Tyree Nichols and the Memphis, Tennessee police officers who savagely beat the 29-year-old black FedEx worker for three minutes while screaming profanities at him. Nichols was hospitalized and died days later. Five police officers, who also are black, were fired and charged with second-degree murder and other offenses in his beating and death. On Monday, two more Memphis officers were disciplined, and three emergency medical technicians were fired in the case. Nichols' parents are set to attend Biden's State of the Union address next week, hoping to increase pressure on the president and Washington. And the same lawmakers who were close to a deal the last time are now looking to see if any remnants of a compromise have the chance of passing a newly divided Congress. Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris met with members of the Congressional Black Caucus on Thursday to explore the possibility of getting such a bill back on track. My hope is that this dark memory spurs some action that we've all been fighting for, Biden said, before the start of the Oval Office meeting. At the White House, where Senators Raphael Warnock of Georgia and Cory Booker of New Jersey, two of three black senators, and Representatives Steve Horsford of Nevada, Sheila Jackson Lee of Texas, Jim Clyburn of South Carolina, and Joe Negus of Colorado. Horsford, the caucus chairman, said it was long past time to have a genuine conversation about policing in America. I am working to make sure that we have a clear plan. South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, the sole black Republican senator, emerged as one of the lead negotiators in the Senate after the brutal police killing of Floyd in 2020. He and Booker embarked on a nine-month painstaking negotiation. The talks focused on writing comprehensive compromise legislation curbing law enforcement agencies' use of force and making them more accountable for abuses. But negotiations stalled over Democrats' demands to make individual police officers accused of abuses liable for civil penalties. It's currently difficult to pursue such actions, called qualified immunity, in all but the most egregious cases. Republicans and law enforcement groups, like the Fraternal Order of Police, have resisted easing those limitations. Jim Pascoe, executive director of the Fraternal Order of Police, said he was in touch with the White House last Friday when video of Nichols's beating became public about whether the situation could be a catalyst to get things moving again. His organization, the nation's largest police union, had participated in previous attempts to reach a bipartisan deal. He had agreed on banning chokeholds, curbing the transfer of military equipment to police, and increasing funds for mental health programs. Those agreements are now the foundation for any negotiations in the wake of Nichols' death. Pasco said, We're kind of in a wait-and-see mode right now, with Republicans now controlling the House, making legislative progress harder. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican of California, on Thursday signaled an openness to discussing the issue. Scott said resurrection the previous Democratic bill is a non-starter. 
he implored Democrats to put aside tribalism in order to strike a deal. I've been working toward common ground solutions that actually have a shot at passing, he said. Solutions to increase funding and training to make sure only the best wear the badge. At Nichols's funeral in Memphis on Wednesday, Harris demanded that Congress pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, legislation she co-authored during her time in the Senate. Nichols's loved ones echoed that sentiment. We need to take some action because there should be no other child that should suffer the way my son and all the other parents here have lost their children. We need to get that bill passed, Rovon Wells said Wednesday at their as they buried her son. Because if we don't, that blood, the next child that dies, that blood is going to be on their hands. Turning to the Nation and the World page, the Digest column. The first story is, Russia hits civilian targets once more. Dateline, Kiev, Ukraine. Russian missiles hit residential areas in an eastern Ukrainian city Thursday for the second time in 24 hours, while top European Union officials held talks with the government in Kiev as the war with Russia approaches its one-year milestone. The latest strikes in Kramatorsk came as rescue crews searched for survivors in the rubble of an apartment building hit late Wednesday by a Russian missile that killed at least three people and wounded 21 others. At least one more victim was thought to be under the debris, Ukraine's presidential office said. Russia has frequently struck apartment buildings during the war, causing civilian casualties. Meanwhile, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky met with European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen ahead of what officials just described as a summit on Friday. The next story is Biden enacts new federal family leave. As of the 30th anniversary of the Family and Medical Leave Act approaches, President Joe Biden on Thursday signed a mem- a memorandum that calls on heads of federal agencies to support access to unpaid family and medical leave for federal workers in their first year on the job. Workers aren't entitled to unpaid leave under the law until they've been employed for a year. Biden championed but failed to win support for paid leave for workers in 2021. The president also directed the Office of Personnel Management to provide recommendations on developing policies so workers can get paid and unpaid leave to seek safety or recover from domestic violence, dating violence, sexual assault, or stalking. Such situations are not covered by the family leave law. And briefly, eye drops. U.S. health officials this week advised people to stop using Azracare artificial tears over-the-counter eye drops, which were linked to an outbreak of drug-resistant infections. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention said the outbreak included at least 55 people in 12 states. One died. Jobless aid. Applications for jobless aid in the U.S. for the week ending January 28th fell by 3,000 to 183,000 from 186,000 the previous week, the Labor Department reported on Thursday. Powerless. Hundreds of thousands of frustrated Texans shivered in their homes 
Thursday after more than a day without power, including many in the state capital, as an icy winter storm that has been blamed for at least 10 traffic deaths lingered across much of the southern U.S. Green. Joseph Morelli, 51, of New York, pleaded guilty this week to making threatening phone calls to Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia, federal prosecutors announced. Greene has been criticized for embracing conspiracy theories and suggesting that former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi should be executed for treason. Santos. Federal authorities are investigating a military veteran's claim that now U.S. Representative George Santos raised $3,000 for life-saving surgery for his dog in 2016, but never turned over the money for the animal's care, according to a report published this week. And last, rate hike. The European Central Bank went ahead with another outsized interest rate hike Thursday and vowed more will follow, underlining its drive to subdue inflation. The Frankfurt-based bank raised its key benchmarks by half a percentage point and said it intends to make a similar move in March. You are listening to the reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette for Friday, February 3rd, 2023. I'm your reader, Catherine Moyers. You are listening on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Next, we'll turn to today's obituaries. Beverly Jean DeLacy. Feb- May 30th, 1935 to February 2nd, 2023. Beverly Jean DeLacy Howell, 87 of Cloquet, passed away on Thursday, February 2nd, 2023 in Community Memorial Hospital in Cloquet, Minnesota. She was born on May 30th, 1935 in Des Moines, Iowa to Lewis and Vivian Howell. Beverly married David Allen DeLacy on April 8th, 1972. Beverly worked at Cloquet Memorial Hospital for 11 years. She sold pull tabs at the Labor Temple in Cloquet for 12 years, and she worked for Dairy Queen for 22 years. Beverly liked bowling, watching softball games, and golf, and going dancing on Saturday nights. She was preceded in death by her parents, stepbrother Daryl Hole, and half-sister Kathy Okra. Beverly will be greatly missed by her husband, David of Cloquet, daughters Deborah Jane Suave of California, and Dorothy Kalish, grandson Trenton Kalish, granddaughter Tawny Ray Newton, great-granddaughter Aubrey Jean Newton, great-grandsons Levi Kalish and Luke Kalish, half-brother Richard uh, of Nashua, Iowa, uh, California, Jolyn Kuhlman of Federal Way, Washington, and sister-in-law, Leona Howell of Nora Springs, Iowa. A graveside service will take place in the spring. Arrangements entrusted to Atkins Northland Funeral Home, Cloquet. To sign the guest book and leave an online tribute, see atkinsonnorthlandfuneralhome.com. Michael Ray Baker Michael Mike Ray Baker, 73, died Wednesday, February 1st, 2023, at the Mayo Clinic Hospital Methodist Campus, Rochester, Minnesota. A celebration of life service will be held at 11 a.m. Tuesday, February 7th, 2023, at Trinity Lutheran Church, 
213 North Pennsylvania Avenue, Mason City, with the Reverend Dan Garretts officiating. A memorial visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. Monday, February 6, 2023, at Ward Van Syke Colonial Chapel, 310 West 1st Avenue, North Clear Lake. The family kindly requests attendees to wear a mask to help family and friends that are immunocompromised. Memorials may be directed to Trinity Lutheran Church, Mason City, or the Clear Lake Public Library in Mike's honor. Ward Van Syke, Colonial Chapel, 310 1st Avenue, North Clear Lake, Iowa, 50428, or call 641-357-2193. Wayne Everett Lean, Belmond. Wayne E. Lean, 88, of Belmond, Iowa, a Kanawha native, died January 30, 2023, at Belmond. Funeral service will be at 11 a.m. Saturday, February 4, 2023, at Trinity Lutheran Church, Belmond. Burial with full military honors will be in the Amsterdam Cemetery, Kanawha. Public visitation will be at church Saturday from 10 to 11 a.m. Memorial suggested to Trinity Lutheran Church, Goodell American Legion Post, or the donor's choice. Survivors include wife Jean Lean, Belmont, daughters Paula and Kurt Logue of Adele, Iowa, and her families, and Janine and Jeremy Mao of Webster City, Iowa, and her families. Andrew Funeral Home, Belmont, Iowa. Andrew's Funeral Home and Floral.com, 641 444 4474. Orlando H. Lindley, December 28, 1931 to February 1, 2023. Norris Springs. Orlando H. Lindley, 91, of Norris Springs, passed away peacefully Wednesday, February 1, 2023 at Good Shepherd Health Center in Mason City. Memorial services will be held at 2 p.m. Tuesday, February 7, 2023 at Rock Creek Lutheran Church, 3269 Foothill Avenue, Osage. He will be laid to rest at Rock Creek Evangelical Lutheran Cemetery. Visitation will be held one hour prior to the service at the church. Military honors will be provided by the Osage VFW Post 7920. Orlando Hildreth Lindley was born December 28, 1931 in Osage, Iowa, the son of Oscar and Hulda Landsgard Lindley. He attended Cedar No. 6 Country School, graduating from Osage High School with the class of 1950. Orlando began his service in the United States Army the, f- the same year, serving in both Korea and Japan. Following his honorable discharge, he married the love of his life, Dolores Hall, on September 18, 1954, in Rockford, Iowa. The couple had three children, Tammy, David, and Scott. For over 25 years, Orlando ran the family farm, working the fields and caring for livestock before beginning work at Alexander Technologies. He found enjoyment in being busy and finally retired in 2018. Orlando's service in the military brought him great pride and opened his eyes to needs in the community. He continued this service volunteering with the American Legion, VFW, Norris Springs Veteran Memorial Committee, 
Norris Springs Historical Society, and working with the disabled American veterans. Time outdoors was cherished. Whether it was hunting, fishing, or traveling with Dolores, he looked forward to the adventure. Family trips and following Scott's state competitions around the country brought Orlando and Dolores great joy. He was constantly in the crowd, cheering on his grandchildren at their many events and loved time spent with his great-grandchildren. He also gave his time as a 4-H leader over the years. Orlando was a lifelong member of the Rock Creek Lutheran Church, where he served on various committees and numerous terms on council. His memory will be cherished by all who loved him. Surviving are his wife of 68 years, Dolores, children Tammy Lindley of Altoona, David Lindley of Kanawha, and Scott and Joanna Lindley of Norris Springs. Four grandchildren, Tony, Colton, Cody, and Amber. Great-grandchildren, Xander, Logan, Destiny, Hudson, and Silas. A treasured cousin, Brenda Kelmel. As well as numerous nieces, nephews, cousins, and extended family. Preceding him in death are his parents, sisters, Lorraine Lindley and Adelaide Muller. Holin Bremer Moore, Colonial Chapel, 126 3rd Street, Northeast, Mason City, Iowa, 50401 or call 641-423-2372. Alice Lorraine Nielsen, December 13, 1930 to February 1, 2023, Clear Lake. Alice Lorraine Nielsen, 92, died Wednesday, February 1, 2023, at Mercy One North Iowa Hospice Inpatient Unit, Mason City. A funeral service will be held at 11 a.m. Monday, February 6, 2023, at Zion Lutheran Church, 112 North 4th Street, Clear Lake, with the Reverend Steve Bang officiating. Visitation will be held one hour prior to the service at the church. Burial will be in the Clear, Cle- Cre- in the Clear Lake Cemetery. Memorials may be directed to Zion Lutheran Church, Clear Lake, or Mercy One North Iowa Hospice Unit, Mason City. Alice was born on her grandparents' farm north of Clear Lake on December 13, 1930, the daughter of Glenn and Ellen Villadson Stieg. Alice was united in marriage to Floyd Nielsen on October 16, 1949 at Zion Lutheran Church, Clear Lake. To this union, they were blessed with two children, Craig and Nancy. Alice attended country school, graduating from Clear Lake High School in the class of 1949. Alice had many jobs throughout her life and always worked hard helping others. She worked at her aunt and uncle's grocery store, was a receptionist for Dr. Crumbaugh, and later worked at state brand creameries. Alice retired in 1993 from Clear Lake Community School Food Service Department. Alice loved her church and was a lifelong member of Zion Lutheran, where she served in many capacities. In her younger years, Alice enjoyed singing in the choir, teaching Sunday school, helping with the youth group, and the wedding committee, serving on altar guild and belonging to the Joy Circle. In Alice's free time, she liked to tend her flowers and travel. She enjoyed watching her grandsons in all of their activities and closely followed the Iowa Hawkeyes and Iowa State Cyclones. Alice also loved dancing at the surf ballroom with her husband, Floyd. Alice's greatest passion was hosting family dinners and having coffee with her family and friends. She would relish the time spent with her delightful great-grandchildren, Alexandra, Nora, Ava, and Carter. Alice is survived by her son, Craig Nielsen, 
grandsons Ryan, Whaley, and Dane, Whaley, and great-grandchildren Alexandra, Nora, Ava, and Carter, son-in-law Mark, Whaley, along with many nieces and nephews, other relatives and friends. She is preceded in death by her parents, Glenn and Ellen Steeg, husband Floyd, daughter Nancy Whaley, brother Keith and Bonnie Steeg, sister Joanne and Harold Hochul, in-laws Anna Thielen, Esther Foster, Elsie Armfield, and Lloyd Nielsen. Ward Van Slyke, Colonial Chapel, 310 First Avenue, North Clear Lake, Iowa, 50428. Call 641-357-2193. And in death notices, Lily E. Dipple, 86, of Belmont, died February 1st, 2023, at the Rehabilitation Center of Belmont. Arrangements with the Andrews Funeral Homes, Belmont. John Casey Huberger, 68, of Sheffield, died Wednesday, February 1, 2023, at Mercy One North Iowa Medical Center in Mason City. Arrangements are by Council Woodley Funeral Home and Cremation Services. Mary Hrubetz, 76, of Clear Lake, died Wednesday, February 1, 2023, at Oakwood Care Center. Arrangements, Shock Funeral Home, Middlestadt Chapel. And Norma Russell, 93, of Dow's, died Tuesday, January 31, 2023, at home. Arrangements by Ewing Funeral Home, Dow's. Turning to the sports page, in girls wrestling, Mason City's Phillips Osage duo advance in tournament. Riverhawks grappler makes semis at 105. Green Devils Heman Goodale also move on. By Austin Hansen. Layla Phillips is heading to the IGHSAU State Wrestling Tournament semifinals. The Mason City 105-pounder upset second-seeded Maya Humlesek of Humboldt 6-1 in the quarterfinal to move on. Phillips's win over Humlesek guarantees her a top-five finish regardless of how she wrestles on Friday. It's really cool, and it's really exciting, Phillips said after her quarterfinal victory. It's super, super fun to be part of this and just see the world of girls wrestling grow like this. Phillips, who is seeded 7th at 105 pounds, is now just two wins away from becoming the first sanctioned state champion at her weight. Phillips wrestled Humlicek in Fort Dodge Invitational Finals in December. Phillips and Humlicek were tied 4-4 to late in the second period before Humlicek ultimately won the match via pin. I've been waiting to come back and wrestle her, Phillips said. I knew I was going to see her at state. I'm just glad I got the chance to wrestle her again, and it turned out the way it did. It felt good. Phillips will take on Bettendorf's Taylor Streif in the semifinals tomorrow. Streif is the number six seed at 105 pounds. At the time of printing, the quarterfinal round of the state tournament was not complete. Check Globegazette.com for real-time updates from Extreme Arena in Coralville. Osage 100-pounder Gable Heeman and 110-pounder Jalen Goodale both earned spots in the semifinals at their respective weights. 
Number two, Heman, will wrestle number three, Mia Kurth of Wakan, and number one, Goodale, will take on Vinton Shellsburg's Bree Swenson, the number four seed at 110 pounds. I'm pretty excited, Heman said. I'm ready for another big day. It was a really good day today. Charles City's Lily Luft also qualified for the semifinal with a 9-0 win over Claire Brown of Iowa City High. A mid-match injury didn't keep Mason City girls wrestler Taryn Bomer from beating Atumwa's Delilah Subson in session one. Bomer reached for her leg as she trailed 2-1, forcing officials to temporarily halt the match. After a brief meeting with her coaches, Bomer decided to continue wrestling. She went on to pin Subson in 3 minutes and 58 seconds. Bomer lost to Subson two times during the regular season. She would have been eliminated from the tournament had she not defeated Subson. I didn't want to give up, Bomer said. I wasn't ready to be done. Bomer's teammates weren't ready to go home either. All seven of the wrestlers Mason City brought to Coralville advanced to session two. Layla Phillips, a 105-pounder, and 140-pounder Kylie James moved on to Session 2 through the championship bracket. Bomer, 110-pounder Lila Sheehan, and 115-pounder Kamina Munson, 130-pounder Alexis Heft, and 145-pounder Callie Gibbons advanced via the consolation bracket. Mason City was in 7th in the team standings with 29 points at the end of Session 1. First round of the tournament, we kind of had some bad beats, Mason City head coach Jake Phillips said. In the second round, we talked about being tough, and that's what they did. They grinded some really hard-fought matches out. Just really happy about the progress we've made and the fight they brought down here to Coralville. James won her first two championship matches by fall and wrestled second-seeded Sarah Lewis of Centerville in the quarterfinals in Session 2. Six of the eight wrestlers Osage brought to Extreme Arena competed in Session 2. Heavyweight Emma Shipper and 140-pounder Caitlin Hubish were eliminated from the tournament during the first round of the Wrestlebacks. The Green Devils were in sixth place with 30 team points when Session 1 concluded. Their leading scores in the first session were Heman and Jalen Goodale. The pair amassed a combined four pins in the first session. Charles City advanced all five of its wrestlers to session two. Luft is the only Comet alive in the championship bracket after session one. She won her first two matches of the event via PIM. Two West Fork wrestlers moved on to session two. 125-pound Autumn Stonecipher and 155-pound Jocelyn Boardwell. Both Warhawks, however, dropped out of the championship bracket after Session 1. North Central also has two athletes with matches left to wrestle, Mariah Michelle's and Emily or Emma Hall. Michelle's, the number four seed at 100 pounds, won her first two matches via pin. Clear Lake lone state qualifier Olivia Fosna was eliminated during the first session. She dropped her first two matches by a combined five points. What's up next? Session three of the 2023 IGH SAU State Wrestling Tournament will begin at 9 a.m. Friday. Action will stream live on Watch High SAU. 
com. That's W-A-T-C-H-I-G-H-S-A-U dot com. In college women's basketball, number 12 Cyclones edged by K-State. Dateline, Manhattan, Kansas. Gabby Gregory scored 25 points and combined with Serena Sundell to make seven of eight free throws in the last 22 seconds, and Kansas State defeated number 12 Iowa State, the Big 12 Conference co-leader, 78-77 to on Wednesday night. Gregory clinched it with free throws with 2.3 seconds to go as the Cyclones hit a three-pointer at the buzzer. Iowa State erased a seven-point deficit in the fourth quarter, but only tied the game once at 64 on an Ashley Jones layup with three minutes to go. Emily Ebert answered with a layup, and then Big 12 Steel's leader Jalen Glenn stole the ball for an uncontested layup. After an ISU basket, Glenn drilled a clutch three-pointer that put the Wildcats up 71-66 to with one minute and 41 seconds to go. Glenn finished with 15 points and Sundell 14 for the Wildcats, who beat number 4, Iowa, 84-83 to on November 17th. Lexi Donarski scored 18 points and Jones had 17 for Iowa State, which was tied for the league led with Texas after beating number 14, Oklahoma, on Saturday. Nyamur Diu had 14 points and 14 rebounds and Danae Fritz scored 12. Both teams made eight three-pointers and shot 47%. Iowa State made all 13 free throws, but K-State was 16 of 20. Fritz had a three-pointer and three-point play in an 11-2 run in the middle of the second quarter that had ISU up by 11, but Gregory and Sundell helped K-State close with, within 36-32 to 32 at halftime. The Wildcats held Jones to four points in the first half and only trailed 36-32. to 32. Jones has been on fire with 77 points in her last three games, scoring 32 against Oklahoma, and was the Big 12 Player of the Week for the 12th time, trying former, tying former teammate Bridget Carlton for second in league history. Ebert hit a three-pointer with 18 seconds to go in the third quarter to give Kansas State a 54-53 to 53 lead. Iowa State is home against Baylor on Saturday. Kansas State, which ho- lost to the Cyclones 67-56 to in the first meeting, is at Texas Tech on Sunday. Turning to college men's basketball, the title is Bulldogs Outlast Panthers in Double OT Victory by Ethan Patrick, Dateline Des Moines. Bowen Bourne cashed in on buzzer beaters at the end of regulation and overtime en route to a 30-point game, but Northern Iowa fell short 88-81 to in the double overtime against in-state rival Drake. Panthers head coach Ben Jacobson described the game as a blast, despite the loss, and said he was really proud of the effort from his team. We talked about a little in the locker room with the guys. It was an absolute blast to be part of that, Jacobson said. For us, as their coaches, and for our fans, What they have been watching from these guys, the way our guys played, what a blast. Bourne described the game in similar terms as his head coach. It is fun, Bourne said. The environment and their crowd is great. The in-state rivalry and all that stuff stacked on top of each other, it is fun. 
basketball is supposed to be fun. Bourne continued and admitted that he would have preferred the win over his pair of buzzer beaters, but said it was a moment that most basketball players dream of. The first half had the look of the Panthers' recent losses as the Bulldogs pulled into the lead with their perimeter shooting. Leading 7-6 to six with 14-6 and six remaining in the half, UNI surrendered three consecutive triples as Connor Enright and O.K. Dejamgus put Drake ahead 15-7. to seven. However, facing the 8-point deficit and 9-point swing, the Panthers managed to avoid collapse and went on a 6-0 run to trim the lead to 15-13. to 13. Drake guard D.J. Wilkins cashed in on another three-pointer to put the Bulldogs ahead 18-13 to 13 before UNI shut the door on the perimeter. Trailing by five, UNI went on an 11-0 run powered by triples from James Betts and Landon Wolfe who hit a pair of three-pointers to put UNI ahead for the remainder of the frame. But the Panthers' run came from a renewed energy on the defensive end as UNI held Drake to 0-6 from three in the final nine minutes of the half. UNI finished the first half the better three-point shooting team as the Panthers connected on five of 13 attempts and Drake hit just 25% of its 16 attempts from beyond the arc. After giving up a three-point play to Drake, guard Roman Penn, the Panthers managed to push their lead to 41-33 to with an 8-2 run led by four points from Trey Campbell. Landon Wolf capped the run with his fourth bucket of the game to give him 10 on the night with 14 minutes remaining in the game. Wolf's unexpected contributions off the bench played a massive role in both UNI runs as Drake held usual offensive dynamo, Titan Anderson, to 0-for-3 from the field, while the forward suffered through an ankle injury suffered in the first half. The importance of Wolf's play did not go unnoticed by his head coach, either. He was great, Jacobson said, really important in that first half. We had not quite got it going in offense, and then Landon knocked in a couple of threes and gave us a little punch. Anderson managed 10 rebounds before he fouled out, but never broke the Bulldogs, suffocating defense below the rim. He turned that ankle pretty good, Jacobson said. It was one. And that does it for today's reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette for Friday, February 3, 2023. I'm your reader, Catherine Moyers. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thank you for listening.